I'm Anya, and I spent decades compartmentalizing and suppressing the different parts of myself. I woke up at age 40 exhausted, confused, and completely out of alignment. These days, I am definitely not your run-of-the-mill bored housewife. So if you are tired of the shame narrative around sex and pleasure, and you're ready to be all facets of yourself, let's create sexual alchemy. This is a Soul Fire production. Hello, loves, and welcome back to another week of sexual alchemy conversations around the unshaming, the destigmatization, the embracing of one's sexuality, one's experience in life. And this conversation that I had today with Courtney Brame of Something Positive for Positive People is sticking with me on the other side. What you're going to notice in this conversation today is that Courtney is a man who knows himself. He has not shied away from deep exploration of himself, of his personhood, of his own demons and shadows. And I find the conversation to be super frank, super comfortable, and super revealing as well. And so I hope you enjoy it as well. Courtney is an incredible person. He is the founder, the executive director, and podcast host of Something Positive for Positive People. And this organization is one that he started in 2017. And it was created in the aftermath of him having interviewed people who were living with herpes and talking with them about their experiences from diagnosis to disclosure. After seeing people struggle with suicide ideation, he set out to alleviate that suffering by offering the stories of those navigating a herpes diagnosis in their own way and helping to create a roadmap through stigma for these folks. Now in 2022, what had begun as suicide prevention for people with herpes has now become an overall platform to support people's communication around sexual health in a way that challenges stigma. And that's right up my alley. It's important work. It's work that's inspiring, and it's work that we all need if we're going to embrace sexual positivity and who we are as people with that divine birthright of sexual wholeness without shame. So enjoy this conversation with Courtney. It was a good one. It was a great one. And his organization is doing really important things. And you'll hear about ways you can get involved if you so desire at the end of the episode. See you on the other side. Hey, Courtney. Hey. <laughs> How are you today? I'm all right. How about yourself? I'm doing well. We're having a beautiful day here in Denver. It's gorgeous. The sun is out. It's warm. I'm here for it. So it feels like life is starting to thaw out a little bit, and I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely happy about that. Yeah, I think over here it's partly cloudy in Portland, Oregon. I mean, as it always is. It's I was going to say, isn't really, it always partly cloudy in Oregon? Yeah, it's just generally gray, but <laughs> I mean, it's nice to me. Um, today, I only wore sweatpants and a hoodie. So that for me means that it's warm outside. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to bundle up. Mm-mm. Nice, nice, nice. Well, Courtney, thanks for coming on Sexual Alchemy. Um, 
I heard about you through a friend of mine who has long been a fan of what you're doing with Something Positive for Positive People. And I'd love you to just tell my listeners a little bit about the organization, about yourself, before we kick into some some topics that get a little juicier. Yeah, I am Courtney Brain. I use he, him pronouns. And I am the founder, executive director, and podcast host of an organization slash platform called Something Positive for Positive People. This began in 2017 as an, uh, as a suicide prevention resource for people who are struggling most with herpes stigma. Um, I have genital HSV2, the virus that primarily causes genital herpes outbreaks. And I was diagnosed in 2013-ish. And uh, it took me about four years before I found resources that connected me to other people who had the same experience. And once I found it, uh, I realized that there were a few people who weren't at an okay place with their diagnosis like I was. These were people who expressed suicide ideation. And my intention in creating this was as a way of bringing people who've had just normal everyday experiences with this virus, bringing their experiences to the people who otherwise don't see a way to live with mm. having herpes. Um, so I, I tell people, and I, I want to make this clear, that I believe most people who are living with herpes are okay, but it's the people who aren't okay who are looking for these kinds of resources. And when you are looking for these resources, when most people aren't having an issue, then you're going to find yourself running into uh, a situation where it's like, why am I not seeing other people who are dealing with this? So the creation of this resource is really to bring in the lived experiences of people who are okay with their status for people who aren't okay to have a roadmap on how to deal with their herpes diagnosis. So that was how it originated in 2017. Uh, in 2019, I made it into a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 nonprofit, where the intention was to get people therapy. If people were struggling with herpes stigma, get them into therapy. I was able to pay for around 40 people to receive either group or individual therapy. Wow. And some of the things that I found were that people already had a therapist and they just didn't feel comfortable disclosing their herpes status to their therapist, which wow. I thought was so wild. And I get it because that's your safe space. Just like with family and friends and potential partners, you don't want to be seen in this light by one of your safe, trusted people. And the way that we often feel about having herpes or how we'll feel uh, that other people will feel about us having herpes, we project onto other people. And we don't want to right. risk losing those connections because of disclosing our status. Um, along the way, what continued to come up is that sexual health is mental health. Uh, stigma comes in from all angles, from the medical facility, from the media, from whatever our sex education was or wasn't. And then just what we sort of um, develop within ourselves as a result of these messages. And the stigma comes from people who either don't have herpes or have no idea what it's like to have herpes or also think they don't know anyone with herpes. Mm -hmm. So the whole theme of sexual health is mental health 
to me, is a reframe of the way that we look at a person who's living with an STI and we see them not as someone who performed whatever sex act and now has this experience, but a person who is living through that experience. So when we look at it from the mental health uh, prioritization, we see a person who has navigated stigma, who may have been struggling with stigma, but through and through, like they're here, they're here, they're here now, and this is how they're showing up. So when we can begin to get healthcare providers to view people as uh, just being humans who have dealt with an experience, I think that that reframes the stigmatization of people for the sex acts that may have brought them into the doctor's office in the first place. And that is often the first contact point of stigma for people. Mm, um, totally. Another one could be when they speak to a partner and let's say a partner discloses a positive status and they're like, mm -hmm. well, hey, I have HSV or I have HPV or HIV. This may be the first touch point of a person's experience with an STI. So there's no telling how this person might respond to that. And oftentimes we can find ourselves as people who are doing the disclosing, uh, feeling uh, stigmatized because we've projected a reaction or an emotion onto this person that really is within us. And the other person could just be surprised or thrown off by the fact that someone actually told them that they have an SCI. Uh, the other angle is just the sex education system where often taught, well, at this point, um, I don't know, you know what is in the works, but I was informed by my education system that if someone had an SCI and I'm someone with a penis who had sex with vulva owners, that you would be able to see or smell if there was an infection mm. and that it would be so painful or uncomfortable that the right. other person wouldn't want to be sexual at all. And this was just like the messaging that I got. And honestly, I was more concerned about pregnancy than I was as CIs right. because that was also the messaging at home. My mom was pregnant with me at 17 and she really drove home for me. Don't get anyone pregnant. Don't get anyone pregnant. Yeah. And that really motivated my use of condoms throughout. <laughs> so when I ended up testing positive for herpes, it was like a huge shock to me because I did everything right. No one uh, that I had sex with had a smell or any sort of visible symptoms. And it didn't hurt as far as I knew for them having sex. So I had no reason to think that I was exposing myself to STIs. And I also thought that condoms protected us from right. STIs. Only to learn later that herpes is a skin-to-skin -skin contact virus. And uh, I'm going to stop there because I can, I'll do <laughs> podcast episode, just me explaining the origin story All of the stuff. Positive, yeah. the positive people. So I, I'll, I'll let you ask any questions that you have. No, I love it. I mean, where you are going, I think is super important for people to hear and we can talk about anything. But one of the things that you brought up is our sex education system. And when you and I spoke earlier this week, I really loved the way you were talking about identity validation and how sex education is kind of a touch point for that for us when we are in our formative years. Yet, at least in my experience, it was woefully underdone. We did not talk enough about that. 
And we did not really do any services to try and remove stigma from some of these things. So, you know, not only through our upbringing growing up, we gain identity about what is good and what is bad. And, you know, then you go to sex ed class and they're talking to you or health or whatever, whatever it's called in your area. And they're talking to you about, you know, how you can, how you can kind of spot people who are, you know, not quote unquote clean and who are dirty and how there's a smell there or there's this or that or whatever, then when you find yourself in a very vulnerable position of receiving some sort of diagnosis, you start to create the story in your head about your identity. And I want you to talk a little bit about what we were talking about with regard to that, because I know you, you're excited to talk about this. I think, I think it's really important that we're talking about this. I mean, I'm trying to create conversations here and create community around sex positivity in many different ways. And one of the things that is most still kind of the undercurrent of STI and sexual health is something that is still very dark and still very shadowed. So with that prompt, identity validation, go. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I put together a presentation for an organization um, because I'm also a yoga teacher. So they were interested in my background as a yoga instructor and they wanted me to come on and just do a talk and incorporate some yoga stuff for self-care, mental health. And one of the things that I spoke to was the minimization of burnout. So this organization works with people who uh, work with people who have STIs. And I'm aware of how those conversations can go as someone who works with people who have STIs myself. And so the theme was self-care practices to minimize burnout. And what I found is Self-care is portrayed as going on vacation, going and buying a thing, uh, getting bath bombs, like face masks, all of these things that you um, have to have resources in order to be able to access the resources of self-care. And I I find that it's not necessarily about self-care in that sense, but it's more about like your self-image care, your identity, like that kind of care. So identity care is really what self-care is. How do you identify if you are someone who uh, is is feeling drained or you're feeling burnt out or experiencing compassion fatigue. It's moments where your identity is validated that you feel like a surge of connection and like you're rejuvenated, re-energized. So mm-hmm. for someone who is a parent, recognition from their young ones as like, you're a great mom or I love you, mom. Like these things just really fill mm-hmm. a person up. If mm-hmm. You're someone who likes to cook and you cook and you make a bomb meal for people around you and everyone's like, man, this is a good meal. Like those kinds of things really validate your identity. And to put it in a more like simple context, I think 
Um, some of my values are consistency, transparency, and maturity, reciprocity. I believe that I found a way that demonstrates all of these things through podcasting. There was a period of time where I put the podcast on hiatus and I went after applying for grants because I wanted to get funding so that I could continue to do the functions of the nonprofit. Now, mind you, I stopped doing the thing that validated my identity and all of the values that I uphold, which is connecting with people, which is uh, continuing to produce this podcast on a weekly basis for consistency, the transparency and the expression that comes through these conversations is an aspect of identity care for me. So I didn't realize it, but I was experiencing symptoms of burnout myself because I was doing all of these grant applications and getting all these rejections. And that's not really what I started doing this for. And I want to be able to get funding so that I can do more with the podcast. But I also wanted to be able to pay for people to get there because I just honestly ran out of money. That's the yeah. only reason that I'd stopped. So it was like, OK, sure. if I pause the podcast and I do this and I'll be able to pay for people to get therapy. But it took for me to realize that I was burnt out or burning out before I realized wow, I have not been caring for and validating my identity. Mm -hmm. And it was when I uh, picked the podcast back up that I started to feel that sense of centering once more. So when I say identity validation or self-care is identity care, what I mean is find ways that validate your identity, that validate your values, your beliefs, and find a way to express yourself in that way. And that is essentially what that is, because I've also learned that the identity invalidation of a person's identity is connected to their suicide ideation. Exactly. So when yeah. we are able to validate a person's identity by recognizing and seeing the intangible aspects of them, their values, um, their identities, their intersections, how they are expressing themselves. If the way that they're expressing is a way that we're experiencing them and we are able to let them know and you feel within yourself that, wow, you know what I'm doing and how I feel align with one another, that in itself is suicide prevention. That identity validation is supportive to the expression of people. And we, we need that. Yeah, totally need that. And that's where I was, I was drawing the parallel between kind of suicide prevention and how for folk who are having and struggling with suicidal ideations, they probably feel a complete disconnect and invalidation of who they are, right? And they're thinking that if if their ideations are coming from diagnoses, they're thinking that that diagnosis is what is kind of invalidating who they are, making them a bad person, making them unlovable, making them unworthy. And when you're able to kind of work alongside someone who's going through that and see all their beauty and see them for who they are and give them and, and, and assist them with their validation. You know, obviously a lot of it comes from internal and the self as well, but when you are in relationship with people who are struggling like that, I have to imagine that if you can participate in that validation alongside of them, of who they are and loving them and communicating how deep their worth is outside of any of these other factors. So I loved that. I loved that piece of how for yourself and working with others, doing that work can kind of help bridge that gap and, and 
help ease some of that suffering. Yeah. And I think that the more supportive we can be to not just ourselves expressing, but people around us to feel safe expressing as they are, then the more allies we can have, not just in a sense of being able to hold space for someone who discloses their herpes status or SCI sure. status, period, but for vulnerability, like the expression of a herpes diagnosis and sharing that with a partner is honestly a touch point for vulnerability, a touch point for connection. Hell yeah. Because of everything that that person may have had to go through in order to even get to the place of being able to say this vulnerable thing. And yeah. I say this vulnerable thing instead of herpes because that's what it is. This vulnerable thing can be someone's totally. insecurity around being a single parent, around having an unsuccessful marriage, around some shameful Anything. thing about themselves that they're putting out there to you in hopes that you are going to still want to connect with them. Right. Mm -hmm. So the bravery in that vulnerability expression is an opportunity to connect. And I hope that people are able to receive this message in a way that allows for us to obtain more allyship in the support of validating people's identities. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this space. And we're going to talk more about the work that you're doing in this space a little bit later. But in the moment, I also have to imagine there's so much more to Courtney than what we've even been able to glean from your work with something positive for positive people. And in preparation, even before I reached out to you, I just kind of wanted to have a handle on kind of the work that you're doing and the things you're talking about. And you have a ton of episodes on your show, and you've talked a lot about suicide prevention around STI education around lots and lots of things. But I have a sense, and from our conversation the other morning, I also understand there's a lot more that's alive for you right now than just these conversations as well. So I'd love to hear and kind of pull back the covers, as it were, a little bit and get into more conversation about you and your own personal journey outside of your STI diagnoses with herpes and all of that. Like, you're, you're a black man. My listeners can't see that because they aren't seeing our conversation. But I know that from some of the more recent episodes of your show that I listened to, your own identity and how you maneuver yourself in this world, in this world of if we want to talk about non-monogamy, of you know the sexual space and power dynamics and all of that, like there's so much there for you. So tell us a little bit about, about who Courtney is and kind of how you got to be where you are in the sense of your own journey through your sexual identity, sexual self-acceptance. No clue if you ever had any kind of shame that you needed to dismantle um, outside of, you know, kind of the herpes conversation, but it sounds like you had a really positive attitude from jump with that even, but just kind of what, what your journey has been and where you are today and the things that are super alive for you right now? Well, I would say that a lot of this really stems from having started to listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite podcasters, actually my favorite podcaster is Jordan Harbinger. Um, okay. I've been following him, I think it's been about 10 years now, and he'd been on another podcast. And he spoke about value 
and how I say like my values are was as a result of hearing how he spoke to like a person recognizing their value beyond like what you're able to contribute uh, tangibly, but how you show up and make people feel. So one of the first exercises that I did after having developed an understanding for what it meant to be a person of value was I started to go to different people around me. I went to some exes, some friends, coworkers, family members, and I asked them to give me three words that described me, just three words. So I got it from maybe 12 different people and I circled the ones that I liked, underlined the ones that I didn't like. And I got to see, okay, a lot of what I'm putting out is what's being received, but there are some things that I'm putting out that I don't like how they're being received. So I was able to work backwards from there and do more of what aligned and less of what didn't. And in starting to recognize or have this like self-awareness based on reflections and feedback from other people, I was able to develop some consistency, one of my values, right? Yeah. Consistency in how I was showing up. Um, Mm. And the way that that looked for me was how I showed up in friendships, in the workplace. Like there had to be that consistency in order for me to feel aligned with myself. So I want to say that at 23, 24 years old, that's what started it. So that seed having been planted, uh, I was moving. Like I was just moving through uh, the process of being motivated to um, growth Mm -hmm. or motivated by growth and wanting to learn myself and be able to be the kind of person that I guess you need to be in order to run a nonprofit organization. Um, But around that time, I think that that was what cracked me open and made me more open-minded. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I um, went to a predominantly Black elementary, middle school. High school was complete culture shock for me because I think Mm. it was maybe 45% white, 45% Black, 10 percent other um Mm -hmm. and that's that's probably not super accurate but there were like before getting to high school the only white people at school were the teachers (laughs) and i remember uh that there was one white girl in class uh Mm -hmm. one of my uh like third grade class but i'm 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 kind of skipping back and forth but i wanted to like give you a little bit of background just like the the race perspective for sure i'd always played sports so my teammates were uh also white or of other ethnicities and i got to see just how many commonalities and even in the differences that we had like there were ways that there were seeds that were planted from our interactions that later on became watered as I went into adulthood and I was done with playing sports, um, such as like eating sushi. Like I was always taught, don't eat raw fish. And then like I started eating the cooked sushi, the fried kind, and then eventually got into the raw kind. I was like, damn, this is pretty good. And I'm not going to throw up or shit my brains out as a result of eating raw fish. <laughs> um but like just sort of those kinds of uh, differences being able to connect on was what made me a little bit more open-minded to things. And 
the way that I became curious about non-monogamy was a coworker of mine uh, and her partner were polyamorous and they like shared a calendar and they had this consistent transparency, another value uh, mm-hmm. in their communication. They shared a calendar and they were like open in communicating about everything. And I recognize in hindsight that this appealed to me because I hadn't seen a successful marriage, uh, like my grandparents divorced on my mom's side, my grandparents mm. divorced on my dad's side, and then they remarried, got divorced again. So my parents hadn't ever been together as far as I know, um, not mm-hmm. even, you know, in a relationship. Like I thought it was normal to have to go and visit, you know, your one parent on the weekends. So to me, I thought to myself, damn, if I want to have a successful marriage, I need to remove cheating from the table. And that was kind of what appealed to me about non-monogamy. It was like, oh, if you're non-monogamous and you can't cheat. Wrong. That's possible to still do. Totally possible. And I learned uh, through more exploration that it wasn't necessarily the cheating that broke up my family's marriages. It was more about the lying and not just the lying to the other partner, but the lying to themselves about who they were, what they wanted. And I never wanted to be in that situation. So that's another reason that I fell into this whole thing about transparency and why self-development and self-growth were really important to me because I really want to know who I am and how I'm showing up for people. And I want to be transparent in that so that I am able to best connect with whoever it is that I'm connecting with. And I think that through the process of maturing, because maturity being another value, um, I developed this like wisdom, so to speak, of being able to articulate to people, hey, here's what I want, or hey, I don't know what I want, but I know that this is how I'm showing up right now, and here's what it is that I have to offer. Here's what I have space for. How do you see a fit for me in your life, or however that dialogue has to go? So these are, you know, kind of all over the place, but just sort of what got me to this place. If you remove herpes out of the (laughs) equation, these were major components into developing uh, myself into who I am now. And I've had friends who've challenged me, who've supported me, who've also celebrated me throughout this process. And um, I think that uh, I I have to bring herpes back into this point because that's what, allowed for me to get a lot closer to the friends around me. So I found myself in this space of online dating on a website where um, people who have herpes can say, hey, I have herpes. And the whole thing about disclosing was removed from the equation altogether because Mm. everyone knows or has it already. And I found myself almost addicted to that space and the person that I was there because I didn't have to worry about having herpes. Like I was there and I could be present because it wasn't lingering in the back of my mind. When am I going to disclose? How's this person going to take it? That was a a complete, like that thought was gone. Feels like freedom. It was. And it took for me to realize in person that one of my friends who had known me for forever was like, Hey man, you're all right. You don't seem like yourself. And I was like at 
a thing with friends and I'm in my phone in this digital space around people who know me, like these complete strangers who only know that I have herpes. I like myself more around these people than people that mm-hmm. I've bled with, cried with, uh, played football with. That's why I said bled. I was like, yeah. I, I, I led with that one. But people who have seen me cry, you know, and yeah. who know Courtney. So at that point, I had to really integrate these two aspects of myself, um, the digital version of Courtney, the in-person version of Courtney, and just allow for myself to exist and started disclosing my status to my friends and letting them know what I was doing in terms yeah. of the work for something positive for positive people. And as I became more and more confident through the support of my support systems and uh, social networks, it allowed for me to, you know, not just kind of be in the dark about everything I was doing, like I was able to be open about it and get that support from them and have them hold me accountable for like how I show up. And when I say how I show up, I mean, like, I'm aware that I am now, I would be considered a community leader Mm -hmm. um, in the sense of a lot of people with herpes, mostly women reach out to me on a regular basis, like every day about, you know, what disclosing or they're newly diagnosed and they just need resources. And I am one of, there are men who kind of come and go. And I think that what it is, is, and I could be completely wrong, but this is just a consistent pattern. I've seen people show up in this space and they are kind of coping with their diagnosis and then they find a significant other and then they leave the space. So like you put yourself out there, you're like, yeah, I have herpes and I'm okay. And then somebody sliding them DMs and now you, you're like, all right, I'm ready to settle down. I don't need this shit anymore. Or a partner's <laughs> just like, why are you doing that? You don't have to tell the world you have herpes. And that kind of speaks to what a lot of people's main concern is, which is often whether or not they're going to be loved or be in a relationship right. or have a family. And at the first sight of that, I think that a person can go from wanting to be supportive and having nothing but the purest intentions of helping other people, but unconsciously be in their own way coping until they get what it is that they really want, which is that validation uh, and support of a loved one or partner. And I feel confident being able to say this because I'm someone who has processed this in therapy, uh, having been in therapy for two years. Uh, one of the first things my therapist said to me was, I don't think you dealt with your own herpes diagnosis. And my response was bullshit. Like, don't you know who the fuck I am? Like, <laughs> do you not know what I do? And it took until the end of the year where we had a conversation and it came back up somehow. And he asked me, he was like, you remember what I told you the first day we talked? I was like, damn, I made a face and I just started laughing because he was right. I realized I hadn't dealt with my diagnosis. What I was doing was in a sense, um, I tell people herpes represents physically something that we're unable to see on an emotional, mental, energetic level for me. I've created an entire platform, nonprofit organization, podcast, community that essentially allowed for me to outsource my, um, I, I like outsourced my uh, avoided rejection. 
Like basically mm. I avoided rejection by being like, okay, well I have herpes. I'm everywhere on the internet for it. If you Google my name, like there is right. no reason anyone who isn't okay with my herpes diagnosis should move forward with me sexually. And then when that happened, I think that was, that's what it was. It came up in therapy. Someone that I had sex with who knew I had herpes. We even talked about it before I put my penis in her. And then the next day we had sex again. And then when she left, she went home and did some Googling and was just like, I am scared. I have herpes. I can't do this. Blah, blah, blah. So that experience hurt. And I was just like, what is wrong? So that was when I processed it in therapy as that thing ended up coming back up on an energetic level. It was just like, I did everything I could to avoid this thing from happening, this experience of rejection, and it still happened. And that was part of the healing process. Part of the healing process was the awareness and acknowledging of that being the case, because, you know, anyone who moves forward with me is aware that I have herpes and that shouldn't be an issue, yet somehow it still ended up becoming an issue between myself and this other person. So it's a matter of really knowing who you are (laughs) and learning and being willing to learn who you are and actually go there because this shit's hard. It's very hard to do emotional work. It's hard to go through your healing, look at your triggers and Um, I I have an upcoming podcast to talk about this, but we talk about the trauma responses, fight, flight, Mm -hmm. freeze, fawn. But there's another one. There's a challenge response, I believe. When something challenging happens or when you are triggered, you have this energy and you're going to do one of those things that are presented to you, or you can take that energy and respond in a way that challenges whatever that trigger was. So for me, like my challenge response was the development of this organization and being right. willing and able to continue the creation and curation of everything that comes through. Like I consider myself to be an investigative journalist on stigma. Like I'm able to, yeah. through these conversations, have uh, develop solutions, I believe, for people who are struggling with the aspects of stigma that I can help with, which is overall just like sexual health communication, understanding that intersection of sexual health and mental health, and just how we can um, how we can become more uh communicative humans with one another as we interact with this content as we share our stories as we consume these experiences as well and then as far as showing up in like the sex education space like i recognize i'm the only black man who is in the space if um someone Googles herpes or looks at the hashtag for herpes, HSV, you'll see probably 50 different white women who've been like, yeah, I have herpes and it's not a big deal. When the reality is that for the person who's looking for herpes related content, it is in fact a big deal. It's not a big deal to a person who has no reason to ever look up information beyond having had a good doctor who was just like, hey, you know, well, you have herpes. If you have an outbreak, take this medication, let your partners know. And the person who's on the receiving end of that information is able to just walk out of the office and be like, oh, okay, well, 
this is what this is my life now. I'm good. But on the other extremes, you know, just like with my experience, like I have avoided rejection and I can look back and say I ended up in a lot of relationships or partnerships or sexual encounters that weren't of my conscious choosing. It was like, uh, oh, you're interested. Let me. Are you sure you're interested? OK, cool. I won't be able to get rejected. Let's move forward rather than putting myself in the position to get rejected, which is probably why applying for all those fucking grants was so triggering for me and burned me out because that right. was a lot of rejection. So totally. I made a decision of what's important for me to experience rejection with. And part of it is, I mean, all of it, most of it is this organization, which has set me up to be able to communicate well in relationships with partners and be able to put myself in a position to possibly be rejected myself. Um, right. And then you also ask, I'm going to make sure to cover everything that you asked. <laughs> You're doing great. Thank you. Um, another part was like as an educator, um, yeah, recognizing my power in this space and that so many women, like really attractive women, like I speak to a lot of attractive women. I talk to some guys, like it's very, there, there has to be like a set boundary because part of the reason that people come to me is because I'm going to do my best to make you feel better about yourself. I'm going to ask you some challenging questions. I'm going to ask you questions that you may not feel comfortable answering with someone who may not be aware of what your situation is. But I think that I put myself out there enough for people to know what it is that they're going to get when they come to me. So oftentimes conversations aren't just herpes related. Sometimes it's about the relationships that they have. It's about the relationships that they want. And sometimes it gets sexual, like the conversations will get sexual because they're sharing with me uh, that they want to go back into kink or they feel like they can't be non-monogamous. And then it's a matter of sharing examples that have been shared with me, sharing examples from my own life. And I have to be very like clear in what those um and how that information is being presented so that it doesn't look like I'm taking advantage of someone who is reaching out for support, who's at a low place in their diagnosis, and this be misinterpreted for me hitting on them. Am I flirty? Absolutely. Like I try my best to just hype everybody up, even with guys, and I'm a heterosexual person. So it's like, hey man, like go out there and, and do your thing. Like this. This isn't something that's going to hold you back. You're great in these ways. You need to remind yourself of that. So like I hype people up day in yeah. and day out. And yeah. um, I think part of like this defense mechanism, though, against like uh, potentially like flirting being misinterpreted is I am super oblivious to when I am actually being flirted with. So mm -hmm. it kind of translates. So like, yeah, there's this professional setting. Um, I'm a dude with a podcast. So there's all this like gray area there for like what's etiquette or etiquette, what's like ethical or crossing any sort of lines or boundaries. But also like outside of that, I'm like the same way. Da, 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 da. Oh, <laughs> you are having a conversation with me and then really curious about me and playing with your hair and doing all these things. And <laughs> I like I'll carry that same obliviousness into my personal life to the point where somebody got to make it real obvious that they're interested in me. <laughs> and like that's my defense mechanism, if you will, to. Um, putting myself in any sort of a, a situation that's undesirable where it can be misinterpreted in a way that like 
crosses any ethical boundaries. So dating for me in this space as well is super challenging because on one hand, this is how I meet people. Like I meet a lot of people this way. And then on the other hand, it's like, damn, dude, like, how do you at at 33, how do you meet people? Like, it's hard to meet people uh, off line, like in real life. So, uh, yeah, there's the way that I have to carry myself essentially is in that way to where, like, you got to be real obvious that you're in a decent place, good place and that you're hitting on me. <laughs> because <laughs> I I made it a point like not to initiate. If someone inquires on gotcha. my relationship structure status, then we can talk about it. But I'm not going to be the one who initiates, and then also like have to fill it out and uh, take whatever direction from there. Um, as far as my relationship structure, I'm seeing a few people uh, consistently. Um, these are people I've met on. I don't know if we can say dating site names, but I met. Okay. I don't know why not. So I met Field. Field is mm-hmm. an amazing dating app. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that it is very sex positive, uh, queer friendly, and kink friendly as well. So I met two of my current partners on there, um, and then two of my other partners I met. Uh, actually on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Did they slide into your DMs? I'm, I think it might have been. Yes, one did. <laughs> and the other <laughs> one was like an ongoing, uh, like I slid into hers. We got wow. this joke. It's been, it's been about four years. Yeah, it's been four gotcha. years. And um, like she posted some of her story. I just replied to it. And then like the, it was, it, the rest was history. So um yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a partner that I met in real life, um, which is very- who does that anymore, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, like, that's where I'm at now, and I'm recognized nice. that even by the time this podcast episode is up, that could change. But like, this is where I'm at now. Um, as far as like dating, I think dating has changed for me because I know I don't ask people if you're single anymore. I ask people if you're available, like, what are you available for? (laughs) It's a good question. That's a much better question. Oh yeah. Because single does not always mean available. And I mean, even being available doesn't always mean single and that's okay when it's communicated. Um, but to operate under the assumption that just because someone's single doesn't mean or that that means that they're available, um, that could set you up for failure. And one thing that I've learned through non-monogamy is that communication is assumed. It's not assumptions of not communicating like, oh, well, this is supposed yeah. to be how relationships look. You're supposed to only do this thing. We've been on three dates. So now we're in a relationship. We're exclusive. Mm-hmm. Like I love <laughs> the communication elements and expectations of non-monogamy. And I think, honestly, there's a lot that people who um, operate in monogamy can learn from the communication structures that are in place for non-monogamous people. So, like, I don't shit on people for different dating styles or relationship structures. I invite them into these aspects of uh, how relationships are done in different ways as a communications tool. Because I've never been in a monogamous relationship where we talked about not getting married or maybe not living in the same space or not having kids. 
um, or not having the same political or religious views, you know, things like that. Or right. what's going to happen if someone gets pregnant? What happens if someone does get an STI? These are normal conversations in the non-monogamous space. And when I was dating monogamously, these things were just like, why? We don't need to talk about that. Like, why do we need to talk about that? Or right. like, we, what do you mean? Like, it was really frowned upon to have these real ass conversations about right. what, 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 what could potentially happen. Right. That was, hey, <laughs> props to you. <laughs> I asked a long ass question and you delivered. <laughs> Glad to hear Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for that. I, I, I just feel like people would benefit from hearing a little bit about your story and, and, you know, the things that you are working through. And what a, one of the things that I feel like most grateful for you sharing is kind of the work that you did around your own defense mechanisms and how I just had, I had a bit of an aha moment when you were talking about that, that creating this organization where everybody in the world if they so choose to know who who you are and what this organization does is going to know and you're putting it out there. I never really thought about that being an armor of protection so that you don't have to receive rejection and you don't have to feel that kind of discomfort and that rub of somebody not, you know, not being able to to kind of move forward with you. So, I was super vulnerable, super brave and and even at the same time, so is the work that you do, right? Putting it out there the way that you do isn't any less brave just because you're trying to avoid rejection by doing it, you know? Yeah. So I just want to validate all of that for you. And I'm really excited for the work that you do. And I want to make sure that people understand that, you know, while you're not maybe as actively pursuing grants today as you always, as you were when you took that break, you still need it. You're still working for it. You need funding. This is an important organization that's doing important work. So tell us like where we can find you, how people can get involved, that sort of thing. So that if this sparks interest for them, they can show up for you and for the people that you are serving. Yeah. So the organization again is something positive for positive people. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that essentially serves as a suicide prevention resource for people who are navigating STI stigma. Uh, mm -hmm. The podcast itself is the resource. Um, I went through this period of time where I thought that there needed to be more. We need more therapists. We need more resources. We need this and that. And I can't tell you how many people, like when I was going through that process of trying to get money to pay therapists, mm -hmm. uh, they reached out and were just like, this podcast saved my life. This podcast changed my life. Like, thanks to this. I was able to disclose my status for the first time or talk to a partner openly about what I do and don't like in the bedroom. So I want to invest more into the podcast. I mean, I think that um, what I'm pursuing now, like I'm getting back to the core of it, suicide prevention, rather than looking for like grants that are related to STIs, because there's so much money and there's so many organizations out there that can tangibly do more, such as provide X number of tests, 
mm-hmm. see this number of people. And for me, like it's more of an intangible benefit to people for this resource to exist in a way that is aiming to destigmatize the way we communicate about sex. It's not just our sexual health. It's not just our mental health. It's more than that. So yeah. all the support, like Venmo Cash App, uh, just Courtney <laughs> Brain, one word, uh, on PayPal, if you're out of the country, paypal.com slash SPFPP. There's a Patreon page. I have people who are on there um, who understand that I need for these resources to be available and accessible to everybody. I'm not putting a paywall up. So if anyone is supporting me on Patreon, they are very clear that they are supporting the ongoing creation of these resources. They don't get anything special out of it. I'll try to check in and give them updates as to what's going on with the organization. But um, otherwise, like all donations help. And then anyone who works with a nonprofit who would be able to support uh, something like this, because I get I'm able to conduct surveys with our listeners, our audience, and everyone's responsive. Like I'm able to collect the information, but I can't really do anything with it because I just don't have the resources to do anything with it. So, um, that's kind of uh, what it is. I interview people. I'm always looking for podcast guests to come on and share their experiences, um, with STIs, um, Mm -hmm. with suicide ideation or attempts as well. Um, I did a survey in 2021 last year for uh, 1,149 people and a couple of the standout statistics, one of which is that 91% of people who, after their herpes diagnosis, left the doctor, they had no idea what resources they needed until Mm. they came across those resources. For many of them, it was something positive for positive people. For others, it was a book. For some, it was an online video or an online support community. Um, It's all across the board, but you shouldn't leave your doctor's office not having access to the information that is most useful to you for where you are. So another thing that I'm working on is connecting with healthcare uh, mm, facilities beautiful. and the the whole healthcare space to introduce this concept of STI minimization, which is something like something positive for positive people, which is an integration of sexual health and mental health resources. People who have lived experiences with STIs make for Mm -hmm. the best educational resources to support others in navigating either uh, prevention efforts or Mm -hmm. if they do test positive, here's what to do. So I'm also speaking at conferences. If you got a conference and you want me to come talk to your people, like I consider myself to be a dynamic speaker. I have, uh, I've been getting really good feedback. Um, from just 2021, 2022 alone, um, I think I do better in spaces where it's okay for me to like just very candidly share my experiences. Um, I hate having to like put slides together and talk about the facts, statistics. I don't like statistics. I speak yeah. from my surveys and then I speak from the experiences that have been shared with me and then my own experience. And these are the ways that I continue to support the growth and development of something positive for positive people as a platform. And yeah, if you uh, want to connect with this online, digital-based, community-based organization, don't hesitate to reach out. Mm-hmm. Social media at HR My Chest. 
And something positive for positive people is the organization, www.spfpp.org. You can type in something positive for positive people.org and it'll come up, but spfpp.org is so much more simple. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, well, Courtney, thank you so much. Thanks for the education. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for the vulnerability, the bravery, everything that you're doing. Really, really appreciate you and your presence in this space because it's desperately needed. So thank you. Thank you. I hope everybody enjoyed listening and go look up something positive for positive people and consider if it's something you want to get involved with. Thank you so much and have a beautiful week. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. And one of the things that I would love to enlist your help with is getting some more rates and reviews for this beautiful little show that I am enjoying putting out for all of you. If you have a moment and you feel so inclined, I would be indebted and grateful if you would go to either iTunes or Spotify and give me some feedback and hopefully it's five star. So if you're enjoying Sexual Alchemy, spend a little time to do that for me. It would be a great help to me and it would mean the world. Have a beautiful week.